24 and reading from verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found that the stone was rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Anybody got any pets? Okay. I have to close your ears for this opening story if you're, if you're a pet lover. I'm, I'm not a great pet lover. We've, we've, we've got a pet. We've, we've, I've been persuaded to get a cat. Um, I was outvoted three to one. We, we operate just like a church meeting. It was, it was three to one. I was outvoted, so I had to accept it. I nearly lost it the other week. But we found it again. Anyway, there were two neighbours. One neighbour goes away on holiday and asks the other neighbour to look after their house and garden. They go around to the house and do the garden, taking their dog with them. After a few minutes, the dog comes running to the owner with a rabbit in his mouth. They catch the dog, retrieve the rabbit, and find that sadly, it's dead. And slightly chewed. They can't believe it. They think, oh no, what shall we do? They brush the rabbit down, get the hairdryer on it, and try to do its hair, dry it, and then put it back in the rabbit hutch. The neighbours who were on holiday returned the day after, and they asked their friends, did anything unusual happen while we were away? The others replied, no, why do you ask? Well, it's ever so strange, but our rabbit died the day before we went on holiday, and we buried it. I read, some, uh, I read some advice for new ministers. It said, if the body moves, the funeral's over. If the body moves, the funeral's over. I once did a funeral where the body didn't turn up. Um, but it didn't move, and so uh, the funeral continued. But if the, uh, if the body moves, uh, the funeral's over. But it's not always been so obvious. Let me take you back in history. In the mid-18th century, because of war, famine and plagues, village cemeteries became rather full. So they decided to recycle graves. 
They dug up coffins and opened them and made a horrifying discovery. Some of the coffins revealed scratch marks, indicating that some people had actually been buried alive. At the end of the 18th century, one of the greatest fears became the thought of being buried alive. The original idea behind the wake was the family was to stay with the body in case it woke. To allay fears for the Victorian people, uh, someone invented a device whereby a cord was tied to the wrist or ankle of the dead body and then attached to a bell on the outside of the coffin. Franz Harmon, in his book entitled Buried Alive, published in 1895, I'm sure you've read it, uh, recorded of hundreds of instances where people had literally been saved by the bell. And that's where that term comes from. Another phrase, the graveyard shift, originated in reference to people who were hired to stay awake and listen for the bells ringing in the graveyard. I bet you didn't know that. Well, you'll be pleased to know, in case any of you are worried, that advances in medical science and the process of embalming have all but eliminated that fear of being buried alive. But in some senses, it still exists. Uh, some people are literally buried alive by the burdens of life that overwhelm them. The things that happen that just weigh us down and press on us. The problems that cover us and sometimes almost seem to squeeze the breath out of us. And some people are literally paralysed by stress and worry and anxiety about the future. Yes, while people are not physically buried alive, sometimes our lifestyle can suffocate us or bury us alive. Luke's version of the events that first Easter uh, have an added interest. Because uh, Luke, you will know, is a physician. He's a doctor. And so he looks at the resurrection through the eyes of someone who knew a thing or two about death. Luke carefully describes how Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary the mother of James go to the tomb in the pre-dawn darkness on the first day of the week. They came to and finish embalming the body of Jesus. For the Gospel of Luke, the symbol of the Easter miracle is not what they saw, but what they didn't see. The Easter miracle is not about what they saw, but it's what they didn't see. Tom Wright says this, the women obviously weren't expecting it, talking about the resurrection. They were going to the tomb, they weren't going to the tomb, saying to themselves, well we've got these spices in case he's still dead, but let's hope he's alive again. They knew well enough that dead people remained dead. That's why they were going to the tomb that morning to anoint the body. And other the Gospels even records a conversation about, you know, how we're going to remove the stone. Nobody was expecting the resurrection. You see what I did there? Nobody was, no. We, we needed Ian on the drums, sorry. <laughs> Nobody was expecting the resurrection. 
at least not the women. The body had moved and the funeral was over. The women ran to share the good news to the other disciples. But they did not believe the women. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Some of the women in the congregation are nodding their heads. But you know, nobody expected the resurrection. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm quite a sceptical person. Are you? You know, if somebody tells you something quite outrageous, do you automatically believe them? Let me try something on you. Um, a couple of weeks ago, just let me, yeah, I want you to indicate whether you believe this or not, but a couple of weeks ago, I met Sir Alex Ferguson. Not only did I meet him, but I had a conversation where I told him exactly where he had gone wrong in Europe this season. Although I congratulated him on the fact that I thought we were going to win the league. He didn't get cross. He seemed to agree with what I was saying. Now the question I put to you is, do you believe that? (laughs) Do you believe it? Hands up if you believe that that conversation took place. Ooh. (laughs) Somebody nearly put their hand up. (laughs) Now, tell me. Hold on to that thought. Hands up if you don't believe it. Hands up if you think it's complete nonsense. <laughs> well, uh, Tony here, Tony's he's on, the right, he's on the right track here because I had a dream. I had a dream, a real dream. And I woke up, the funny thing is, I woke up thinking he could have at least given me a ticket. <laughs> I don't know why, but I had a dream where I had this conversation with Alex Ferguson. I met him outside my father's house. I don't know what he was doing there. And uh, we had this conversation where I put him right on all these things. And I woke up with that thought. Uh, Why didn't he give me a ticket for the match? Strange, isn't it? But it's just an illustration of how if somebody says something absolutely outrageous or ridiculous uh, that you just know wouldn't happen, our automatic reaction is not to believe it. And of course the women go to the tomb not expecting to find anything but a dead body that they were going to embalm. When they run and tell the disciples that they've been there and they've had this amazing experience, uh, it is quite amazing, isn't it? Um, I'm always surprised, you know the S, I'm always surprised by the angels because we forget. I tend to associate angels with the Christmas story. I don't know about you, you think of angels appearing at Christmas and singing on on hilltops, don't you? Uh, But they they were there in the tomb. And it's interesting what they say to the women, isn't it? Um, You know, they remind the women that Jesus had already told them that this was going to happen. If you were Rivers last Palm Sunday, uh, we were talking about how everything that happens in Holy Week is, is planned out in great detail and Jesus predicts everything that's going to happen from the guy with the donkey to Peter being, uh, be, betraying him to, to Judas uh, for Peter denying him and Judas betraying him let's get it the right way around uh, let's not give him any more grief about what the, the names that they've been labelled with um, and he explains everything that's going to happen and the angels remind the women that Jesus has told you that this is going to happen but he's seen too far-fetched the idea that somebody would come back from the dead seemed too far-fetched. It seemed absolute nonsense. It'd be like me having a conversation with Alex Bergson. It just wouldn't happen. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. 
And I was interested to read, remembering that, uh, that Luke is a doctor, um, one commentator suggests that the original Greek language that, that Luke uses is, and the word that he uses for nonsense is a medical term um, that might be used of a patient who was suffering from some sort of delirium caused by a high fever. In other words, the disciples thought the women were delirious, that they'd lost the plot. And I thought, well, there's something in that, isn't there? Because um, what they had caught was this thing that I want to call Easter fever. Easter fever. They'd caught it. They'd been to the tomb and they'd discovered that Jesus wasn't there. They'd heard the angels say that he's not here, that he has risen. And they'd been given this fantastic news. Easter fever. Why do you look for the living among the dead, the angel says. He's not here. He has risen. This was the message that the women took to the disciples. Easter fever. And Easter fever is something that takes over. I don't know if you've ever had a, a, a fever, but it kind of, uh, it takes over your whole body, doesn't it? It infects every part of you. And this is what happened to the women that, that Easter morning. They were infected with a fever of faith. Of finding out that what Jesus said was actually true. I like the idea. It seems a good description to me. Because the women had caught this fever of faith. Which left them with Easter delirium. delirium. And Christians have been delirious with Easter ever since. And have been celebrating. Live lives that demonstrate resurrection power. That's the challenge, isn't it? That our lives are somehow transformed by this news that Jesus is risen. That it makes a difference because it means that death has been defeated. It means that we know for certain that death is not the end because someone has come back and told us so. Live lives that demonstrate resurrection power. Desmond Tutu uh, wrote uh, a book, No Future Without Forgiveness. Um, It was in response to his uh, position on the Truth and Reconciliation Committee after the uh, apartheid. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu, in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, records many stories of people who were able to demonstrate the power of the cross and the resurrection. And this is one of the stories, just let me share you one. In an emotionally charged courtroom, a South African woman stood with her silent tears, listening while a white police officers acknowledged their atrocities. Officer Van de Broek admitted that he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. Then he and other officers parted while they destroyed her son's body. Eight years later, the same policeman and his associates returned and seized her husband, and she was forced to watch while they killed him. 
Now Van der Broek awaited judgment. The Truth and Reconciliation Committee asked the woman what she wanted. Calmly weeping, she said, I want three things. I want Mr. Van der Broek to take me to the place where they buried my husband's body so that I can give him a proper burial. Second, I want Mr. Van der Broek to, 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 took, to, took, to take all my family. Sorry, Mr. Van der Broek took all my family from me and I still have a lot of love to give. So twice a month, I would like him to come to my ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Third, I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he is forgiven by God and therefore I forgive him. I would like to embrace him so that he will know my forgiveness is real. As the elderly woman walked slowly across the courtroom, Officer Vanderbrook stood to receive her embrace and fainted. He was overwhelmed by the spiritual power of this African woman in the back of the courtroom some people started to sing Amazing Grace. And that's exactly what it was. Amazing Grace. Flowing out from a woman who'd been infected with Easter fever. A woman who could not let hatred and death have the final words in her life. She had been transformed by the risen power of Jesus Christ. Live lives that demonstrate resurrection power. We can live lives that demonstrate the resurrection power when we offer that hand of forgiveness. When we show people that death and that sin and that evil are not going to have the, word, the last word. At the beginning in that uh, refrain we, uh, we read from the Wild Goose publication, I like the fact that it says that God has the first and the last laugh. You know, God is the beginning and God is the end. And God is the author of life and of death and of resurrection. The final thing that I want to say about uh, Easter fever is that it's contagious. Easter fever is contagious. It's a disease that people can catch. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. The women told the disciples, and the disciples eventually spend the rest of their lives telling other people about the risen Jesus Christ. That's what disciples are meant to do. When we mention events like uh, the Jubilee, uh, we're doing it because we want opportunities to tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. And we follow in the footsteps of those women and of those disciples who caught this Easter fever and it was contagious and they passed it on to whoever they met. Whoever they got into conversation was almost instantly infected with this same disease of Easter fever. Easter fever. The fever of faith still infects people today. Just look at this motley crew. On a hill just above the church at six o'clock this morning. Do you think they've been uh, infected with a fever called Easter? Smiles on their faces despite the drizzle and the wind. Singing the praises of Jesus who died. Getting up at an unearthly hour. Not for the reward of a boiled egg. 
but because there is an excitement about the fact that Jesus is alive and he is risen and this is resurrection day. Those three women experienced for themselves the power of the resurrection. So this Easter morning, if you are feeling buried alive by the burdens of life, if you feel weighed down by the weight of the world, then step into the tomb and you never know, you might be infected with a fever called Easter and you might find yourself full of hope and full of love and full of forgiveness. You might find yourself infected with an Easter fever that spreads with the news that death has been defeated, that Jesus is not here, that he is risen and he is alive. And that changes everything. And so may God bless you with a fever that may just save your life. Easter fever.